you, and once again a very good day to those of you who are studying the uh, Bible on the Theological Seminar of the Air. We've come a long way since our first lesson 46 weeks ago. This is lesson 46 on pneumatology, discussing the work of the Holy Spirit. In our previous broadcast, we have discussed theology proper, the study of God the Father and the Trinity and the Godhead, and then we spent many, many weeks discussing Christology, the nature, life, person, work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of their study included what we call eschatology, as the person work of Christ, of course, lays great emphasis on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. This promptly comes under the study of eschatology, or last things, and we discuss this somewhat in detail, although when we get to demonology, we'll discuss uh, more things that have to do with the second coming of Christ in regards to Satan incarnate, who will take over the uh, United Pagan Soviet Roman nation setup as it's heading up and shaping up in Europe today. And, of course, this can't be accomplished until America is bankrupt. And, of course, the government policy is designed to bankrupt America and make her dependent upon foreign powers. I think of all of you knew that. I take that for granted. I take for granted there's enough truth being published apart from the news media where you can get that information. And although you can't get that information in the news media, there's still not freedom of the press, so you can get paperbacks with documented material to show you that the planned famine and planned bankruptcy of the United States is a government-operated job. Uh, sometimes this is blamed on the Illuminati, sometimes the Masons, sometimes it's blamed on the CFR, sometimes it's blamed on the international bankers, the Khazars, the various groups. Uh, but the fact of the matter remains, the devil is the god of this world, and his plans for America are to reduce it to a third-rate power that he depended upon domination from Rome under a Roman-Soviet world court with an international army to come over here and keep the civilian populace in line with weapons. Uh, this, of course, will be accompanied by the mark of the beast and a computerized system to deliver the number 666. But of course, all this deals with eschatology, and we'll discuss, discuss it further in our lessons on demonology and angelology. Our lesson this week is in the work of the Holy Spirit, properly a subject of discussion on pneumatology. And we've already learned, of course, that the Holy Spirit is a divine personality who has a definite function in the world. As the third person of the Godhead, the Holy Spirit has been very, very active. His activity has been shown in regard to the universe and the people on earth. And ever since Acts chapter 2, his ministry has changed somewhat with regard to believers. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit had a come-and-go ministry. This is very uh, clear by his dealing with Saul, Samson, and David. The Holy Spirit left Samson and returned. The Holy Spirit left Saul and did not return. The Holy Spirit could have left David and did not leave David. It was a come-and-go ministry at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came to indwell believers and abide in the living church of Jesus Christ and make them one body in Christ. We read, for example, in Judges 6.34, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. We read in 1 Samuel 16.14, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. When David sins in Psalm 51.11, he prays, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Uh, such a prayer would never be prayed after the Holy Spirit came into the body of Christ because the Holy Spirit has taken up a residence permanently in the body of the believer. This is abundantly clear from the book of Ephesians that says, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed until or unto the day of redemption. And even more specifically, in John 14:16, the Lord Jesus Christ said, When the Comforter comes, he will abide with you forever. 
This is the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit until the rapture, the Holy Spirit indwelling the body of the believer and making him bone of Christ's bone and flesh of Christ's flesh. Now, in this discussion, the work of the Holy Spirit, we study the matter under seven categories. By far the largest of these categories is the work of the Holy Spirit in relation to the believer. And there are at least 39 or 40 things that the Holy Spirit has to do with the believer. So we can see the work of the Holy Spirit is a very intense and thoroughly scriptural biblical doctrine that needs to be studied and studied in much detail. Before this, we're going to discuss the work of the Holy Spirit in relation to creation, in relation to the preservation of the universe, in relation to the unbeliever, in relation to the scriptures, and in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit is active in creation, in preservation, in illumination, in regeneration, in sanctification, in adoption, and many, many other ways. The recent false emphasis on the Holy Ghost by uh, many dean-possessed uh, so-called charismatics is due largely to the fact that many Baptist and Methodist and Presbyterian churches have quit teaching about the Holy Spirit, and the heretics have taken advantage of their ignorance by pulling off a sham upon them by misapplying Acts 19 and Acts 2 to the wrong people. Uh, the lack of emphasis upon the Holy Spirit in the average congregation is perfectly apparent, and so in the last ten years, many of the people who talk much about the Holy Ghost have been able to steal sheep out of other flocks by putting an emphasis on something they know nothing about. Uh, the nonsense about have you received the Holy Ghost since you believe is typical of the blasphemous foolish carried on by this obscene type of work. Uh, any Christian who's saved always knows about the Holy Spirit and has heard about the Holy Spirit. The question, therefore, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believe is nonsense. Uh, the people who were baptized in Acts chapter 9, who were baptized under John the Baptist before the crucifixion. There isn't a Christian anywhere in Acts chapter 19, one verse, verse 1 to verse 6, except Paul, and he has to tell them about the gospel before they get baptized after they've been saved. Now, this twisted, perverted, uh, calm bobbling of the scripture put on the modern Baptist, Methodist, and Presbyterian by demon-possessed people is typical of the apostasy of the Laodicean church, where people who talk the most about the Holy Ghost know the very least about him. So we pay you to spend time with us in these broadcasts studying and learn the difference between the uh, demon-possessed uh, charisma or demon-possessed charismatic and the Holy Spirit that wrote the book and preserved it. First of all, the work of the Holy Spirit in relation to creation. The Holy Spirit was active in creation, for we read in Genesis 1, verse 2, the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and in Psalm 33, 6, we read, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Now, from your previous studies, you've learned the Holy Spirit is likened to wind, which is why they call this study pneumatology. You are familiar, I am sure, with a pneumatic drill, a wind-driven drill by compressed air, or pneumonia, trouble with your wind. The breath of God's mouth is his spirit. And in creating this universe in Genesis 1, the Holy Spirit was the medium or agent through which this was done. You might also very carefully check the following verses. Job 26:13, Job 26:14, Psalm 104, verse 30, and Job 33, verse 4. So first of all, we notice the Holy Spirit is active in relation to creation. 
then the Holy Spirit is active in relation to the preservation of the universe. Notice, for example, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 7, quote, The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. The Spirit creates and preserves, and he destroys at will. In Psalm 104, verse 30, we read, quote, Thou sendest forth thy Spirit, they are created, and thou renewest the face of the earth. By the word of God and the Spirit's power, the world is renewed. And if you want to know why, you can plant a little old thing in the ground the size of your fingernail and have it come up into two stalks as big sometimes as your forearm. It's because of the Spirit of God. Don't ever mistake, make the mistake of giving the credit to Mother Nature or your state agricultural, agricultural bureau. <laughs> the reason why this earth doesn't dry up in the heat of the sun or freeze in the black outer darkness of midnight is because the Spirit of God who made this universe sustained it. And if you want to know why nature, after dying every winter and becoming sheathed in garments of ice and snow, suddenly in the spring bursts forth into flower and song, and the little old larks become unbottled in the springtime, and the trees form their boots of sod, and all the daisies in the fields burst like harmless bombshells, and even the weeds are dressed like the daughters of God, it's because of the Holy Spirit, the third person of Trinity, and don't you ever give the credit to nature. These humanists, their first god is men, and their second god is nature. In the Bible, there is one true God, and that's God the Father, and God the Father is manifest as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as the Godhead. And as the Holy Spirit, quote, that reneweth the face of the earth. So we see a basic difference between the objective, educated, cultured, atheistic, materialist, agnostic scientist who doesn't have the sense that God gave to a brass monkey and has mistaken his education as vocabulary for intelligence, and the born-again, Bible-believing Christian who gives credit where credit is due and glory where glory is deserved and honor where honor has been earned. The credit goes to God, not man. Now, if you ever doubt this, you come down here on the Gulf Coast and get in the eye of a hurricane, and then we'll see about your big uh, concurrence of atomic fission and your big enzyme acid and amino acids and creation of life out of a test tube and all that gas you blow out hot air about trying to kid some dumb sucker in your school that's paying tuition. I'd like to see any scientist in this world come down here on the Gulf Coast and get in the eye of a hurricane and do anything to stop it or even slow it down. Did you ever get in a brush fire out in the Sierra Madre or Sierra Nevada or the San Bernardino Mountains? Did you ever get in a brush fire in California in a 40-mile-an-hour wind? Do you know what the atomic scientist, the modern educated man, the great man, liberating man of the human rights, of the civil rights to make uh, the world a better place to live in, with our great advancements in science and our stride forward in technology, <laughs> You know what they do to stop that? They curse. And the ones that are saved pray. But you don't stop it. Listen, when God Almighty turns Mother Nature loose, and God controls nature, and turns this element loose, you ain't going to do nothing, son. Now, I don't care if you've got 45 years college and 65 years seminary, you ain't going to do nothing. All right, that is an all.
The Holy Spirit is active in relation to the unbeliever. The great things that mark this age, apart from many other ages, the tremendous, mighty work 24 hours a day done by the Holy Spirit in convicting the unsaved world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. We read in John 16, verse 8 to 11, when he is come, notice the Holy Spirit's the person, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. The Holy Spirit then is active in the world today. One of the greatest warnings given to God, or to man by God in this day and age in which you live, is the depletion of oil supplies. Did you hear what I said? I said if you believe the King James Bible, you can understand the oil problem better than Esau or Exxon. Oil is a type of the Holy Spirit. And where you find all the supplies giving out, you find the Holy Spirit is withdrawing himself from the active affairs of men and letting, quote, nature take its course and letting human depravity come into full blossom. And one of the great signs, the end of this age has nothing to do with the fig tree or Magog and Gog or Ezekiel or anything. It has to do with the fact that the oil is running out. The end of the Laodicean church is a time when God begins to cease his strivings with people as such. Because of the days of Noah, things will be repeated in the days of Noah, the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. The Holy Spirit in the world today is convincing the world of sin because they do not believe in Jesus Christ. The king crowning sin that damns a man to hell is not smoking, not drinking, not fornication, not adultery, not raping, stealing, mugging, lying, swearing, killing, kidnapping. The sin that damns a man is not believing on Jesus Christ. That's why you never hear that sin confessed. Didn't you notice that? Did you notice that unsaved men will confess any sin before they'll confess the sin of rejecting Jesus Christ? Have you ever noticed that? Do you know that's one of the most remarkable psychological and psychiatric phenomena manifest in our day, and there isn't a single psychiatrist saved the lost that ever mentioned it? Do you heard it in this broadcast? Isn't that strange? Of all the sins confessed in confessional, you never heard a man confess the following sin. Lord God, I am sorry I rejected your righteousness in Jesus Christ and trusted my own. Please forgive me for trusting my own righteousness instead of the rights of your Son, Jesus Christ. The sin that men don't confess is the one they are practicing and will continue to practice. And when he has come, he will approve the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment. He will convince the world of righteousness because Jesus Christ was completely righteous. We know that because the verse goes on and says, of righteousness, because I go to my Father. Jesus Christ would not have gone to his Father and risen from the dead if he had not been righteous. And that's why we read in Acts chapter 17 that God hath ordained a day in which he's going to judge the world in righteousness, and have given the man all men assurance everywhere, in that he hath raised him from the dead. The thing that proves Jesus Christ righteous is the fact that he came up from the dead and went back to the Father without a hitch. Buddha couldn't make it. And Muhammad, of course, is still stone-cold dead in the market. The Holy Spirit, when he has come, will approve the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He'll convince the world of judgment, for Christ has already been judged at Calvary, 
and his judgment, the prince of this world, was judged, the devil. At Calvary, the final contest took place between Christ and the devil, and although the issue has not yet been resolved between us and the devil, between Christ and the devil, it was resolved and absolved and settled and taken off the docket. There is no more testing between Jesus Christ and Satan. When Christ died on the cross, the prince of this world was judged. He showed his hatred for God. He showed his wrath against God's only begotten Son, the beloved Son of the Father. He manifested his full satanic intention and motive and demonstrated it publicly and was whipped legitimately, lawfully, on his own grounds, according to Hoyle. Colossians 2. Therefore the world is condemned because its prince, its God, has been judged. The God of this world is said to be Satan, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. And when Christ died in Calvary, that ended his legal and lawful dominion over this earth. The dominion now belongs to Jesus Christ, and although he's a king in exile like David, he's waiting to get his throne back like David got it back. It is therefore the work of the Holy Ghost to constantly bear witness of Jesus Christ and Calvary. That's his work. And this he does largely, though not exclusively, to the testimony of believers. For he operates on the conscience of men through the Word of God. It is our job to witness and let the Holy Spirit use us in convicting men of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That's our job, and that's our work, and that's the work we're supposed to do. And may God Almighty help us to do it. Now the Holy Spirit's work doesn't stop here. The Holy Spirit, of course, as the author of Scripture, has a very definite work and a continuous work in relation to the Scripture. His job was not only to inspire the original manuscripts, but to preserve the infallibility of that text and the authority of that text so that a believer in any age would have access to the words of God. The Holy Spirit is the author of the Scriptures. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, we read, Holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, we read all scriptures given the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness. The man of God may be thoroughly furnished, perfect, thoroughly furnished, unto all good works. Notice that the Holy Spirit inspires the scriptures, not the original manuscripts. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 20 is not talking necessarily what men wrote, but what of what men spoke. Holy men of God spoke, spake, as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. When the Scriptures were written, the Holy Spirit inspired those Scriptures, and the term Scripture in the Bible is never a reference to the original manuscripts. The modern heresy taught today by fundamentalists of Christian universities, at every Christian university in America, as a matter of fact, is a heresy that only the original manuscripts were inspired. This blasphemous heresy comes from ignoring the context of 2 Peter or 2 Timothy 3.16. And the serious conscientious student of the Word of God, who should always have a great more sense than a Hebrew or Greek professor, should observe that the context of 2 Timothy 3.16 had absolutely nothing to do with original manuscripts at all. Therefore, the blasphemous heresy that only the original manuscripts are inspired is a heresy taught and promoted by Christian educators in universities and colleges. And this blasphemous heresy comes from cutting up the context of 2 Timothy 3.16 as neatly as a Campbellite ever dislocated Romans 6.3 or dislocated Acts 2.38. The scriptures in 2 Timothy 3.16, in the context, are not a reference to any original manuscripts at all. They are references to writings 
that Timothy had more than 1,500 years after Moses wrote the original Pentateuch. The Holy Spirit is the author of Scripture, the preserver of Scripture, and the interpreter of Scripture. In John 16:14, we read the Holy Spirit is the interpreter. In Luke chapter 24, we learn that Christ opens their understanding. They might understand the Scripture. And apart from the divine interpreter, there is no Greek scholar or Hebrew scholar who can show you one thing from any manuscript of any version that you can't find in the King James 1611 authorized version with the Holy Spirit as your guide and your teacher. In John 14:26, the Lord Jesus Christ said, quote, He shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. So the Holy Spirit calls back verses to your mind and gives you help in answering difficult questions and problems, and the Holy Spirit is not the author and preserver of Scripture, but the interpreter. In a recent uh, so-called beginner's uh, handbook printed by a man named Yeager, you were given access to a lot of scholastic baloney and were told that now you could make your own interpretation of the Scripture and make your own comment from the notes this man gives you. I am here to say there isn't a pope, priest, bishop, cardinal, teacher, professor, fundamentalist, liberal, conservative, neo-orthodox, evangelical, teacher, preacher, prophet upon the face of this earth who can interpret anything for you about anything in that book anywhere from Genesis to Revelation. No prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. The Holy Spirit is the author, the preserver, and the interpreter, and the teacher, and he will teach you or you will learn, he will interpret or you will misinterpret, and there isn't a Hebrew or Greek scholar listening to my voice with 30 years of formal education that can show me one thing from that book from any manuscript, but I can't find in the King James Bible stated just as plain right in front of the nose on your face. I get worn out with these nuts going around talking about the Hebrew and the Greek bringing, about, bringing out the hidden riches of the original. <laughs> I've been teaching Greek and Hebrew for 15 years. I have never found anything in any Greek manuscript or any Hebrew manuscript. I never have found anything in Kittle's uh, Hebrew apparatus or his text or Nestle's apparatus or his text or Allen and Metzger or Griesbach or Tregellis or Lachman or Tischendorf or Schultz or Westcott and Hort or Erasmus or Scribner, but I couldn't find the King James Bible in 15 seconds. I've been challenging these people for 28 years to show me something in these new translations I can't find in a dime store King James Bible, and nobody's ever showed me anything yet. And when they found it, it was already printed in Clarence Larkin in 1909. Oh, we got some winners these days. You bet your booties. All right, the Holy Spirit is active in relation to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, for example, was literally born of the Holy Spirit physically. Luke 1.35. And although you're born of the Holy Spirit spiritually, and we'll talk about that later, the Lord Jesus Christ was born physically by the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost was the author of the conception. That isn't all. The Lord Jesus Christ was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness after his baptism to be tested in Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. So we find the Holy Spirit certainly has a great deal to do with the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ was anointed by the Spirit for service according to Acts 10.38. That is all. Hebrews chapter 9.14 even indicates that Jesus Christ undertook his crucifixion through the power of the Holy Spirit. And if that weren't enough, in Romans 1.4, 
we understand Jesus Christ was resurrected from the grave by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ instructed his disciples in his church through the Holy Spirit, according to Acts 1-2, and Jesus gave the Holy Spirit to the believers, Acts 2, verse 33. Therefore, we see the Holy Spirit is very, very, very important in the Word of God uh, to take no back seat to God the Father or God the Son. I'll give you the references one more time, where you can write them down and study them at your own convenience. The Holy Spirit active in creation. Genesis 1-2, Psalm 104, verse 30, Psalm 33, 6. The Holy Spirit preserving the universe. Psalm 104, verse 30. The Holy Spirit in relation to the unbeliever. John 16, verse 8 to 11. The Holy Spirit in relation to the Scriptures. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. 2 Timothy 3, 16. John 14, 26, Psalm 12, verse 7 and 8. And finally, the work of the Holy Spirit in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 1, verse 35. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Acts chapter 10, verse 38. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. Acts chapter 1, verse 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 33. Now this covers really only half of our subject matter for today, the work of the Holy Spirit. The other works by the Holy Spirit mentioned, such as striving with men, enlightening men, in doing men with skill and wisdom, helping men with ordinary tasks, and anointing men for special jobs that demand special abilities. And then, of course, we have the main work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer yet to discuss. So in our next lesson, lesson number 47, we'll take up a detailed discussion of the relation of the Holy Spirit to the believer. And far from merely being a baptized believer and getting the jabber and the hubber-blubber, hobbly-gobbly, hostile, shandai, anti-bow-tie nonsense, the Holy Spirit has 39 definite works he works for the believer, and there's no Pentecostal or charismatic purveyor or falsehood alive on the face of the earth that even knows what 15 of them are. The great thing that's missing among the people who talk about the Holy Ghost is knowledge of the Holy Ghost. And if one thing it marks the carnal believer who is blabbing off his mouth about not being a denomination but an experience, is their total ignorance of the work of the Holy Ghost in the life of the believer. On the next broadcast, if you have any friends that are caught up in the hobbly-gobbly, hobbly-blubbly, hostile, shantai, bow-tie movement, you might encourage them to listen in and study with us 39 ways the Holy Ghost works in the life of the born-again child of God. So that believer will be rooted and grounded in the truth and not be unscriptural, non-dispensational nonsense that's being taught today out of 1 Corinthians 14 and Acts 2. If you study your Bible, you know as well as you know your own name that there is no unknown tongue in Acts 2 and there is no baptism of the Holy Ghost in 1 Corinthians 14. There's a $150,000 reward for anybody who can find the baptism of the Holy Ghost anywhere in 1 Corinthians 14, if not even mentioned, or find an unknown tongue in Acts 2 
There is no unknown tongue anywhere in the chapter. So on our next broadcast, we'll talk about the scriptural work of the Holy Spirit and the scriptural truth of the Holy Spirit working in the life of the believer. Until then, may the Lord bless you, and good day.